Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from a church past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Welcome, my listeners, loyal and um, new and semi-loyal, I don't know, whoever you are, thank you for listening. This is topic three, Worlds of Fun, part four of series seven, Amusement Parks. This is going to be the final episode of both this topic and this series. So, quick recap. In part one... um. Please listen to all of part one, two, and three if you have not yet, especially part three. That one is still probably my favorite, but recap. Part one, um, I introduced Lamar Hunt and his business partner, Jack Stedman, who were responsible for the creation of the park in the 1970s. Also, Lamar Hunt was the original owner of the Chiefs, so ties together. Um, Then in part two, oh, sorry, um, also in part one, I talked about the architectural firms who designed and built the park. Okay, part two. Um, I found a website that was like a year by year. Here's what was introduced to the park. Here's what left. Here's what was moved around. Um, so I gave that recitation because I just thought it was really fascinating to see the minute changes. Um, part three, which was last weekend, actually. Um, yeah, this was only supposed to be a three-parter. Um, was... Building off of part two, I did a detailed look at the um, construction, design, and then history. Mm, excuse me. Of um, six or seven, I think seven, of the rides at the park. So I talked about the Timberwolf, the Mamba, the Schuspermer was really short, but I talked about it. Um, Orient Express. Oh, it was only a week ago. You think I would remember more of them? Wearing to express an EXT. There you go. There's another one. Um, are two that are no longer around, but were um, a huge deal at the time. So I, t- I talked about them a lot. Oh, and Zimbizi Zingler. Um, I don't think I said that right. Zimbizi Zinger. So yeah, um, a detailed look at those rights. That was really fascinating. So here we go. Part four. Let's get started. We're going to wrap it up. We're going to start with Cedar Fair, and then I'm going to end with Oceans of Fun, because I promised y'all that way back in part one, I think, maybe part two. So um, Cedar Fair, if you are not aware, actually manages multiple amusement parks. Um, They have California's Great America, Canada's Wonderland, Carowinds, Cedar Point, Dorney Park, King's Dominion and Silk City, King's Island, Knott's Berry Farm, Michigan's Adventure, Valley Fair, Cedar Point Shores Water Park, Knott's Silk City Water Park, Schlitterbahn Water Park in New Brussels, Texas, and Schlitterbark Park in Galveston, Cedar Point Sports Center, Sports Force Parks, 
and Worlds of Fun and Oceans Fun. Um, so, real quick, if you are not native to the KC area, KCK actually did have a Schlitterbahn out at the Legends, which is an outdoor shopping mall. Um, probably going to cover the Legends someday in the far future. That area is just, it's really expanded in the last, actually I want to say 10 years, but the answer is probably about 20 years. Anyways, um, so our Schlitterbahn in KCK was only open for a couple of years before a young boy fell off their tallest water slide and died. And of course the Schlitterbahn was also operated by Sea Fair. Um, once it was closed, it was only a year or two for the park to be completely dismantled, honestly. They did it really quickly. Um, the land is still empty, but I did see an article. Um, I found it when I was I was researching Schlitterbahn and Cedar Fair. It was dated from last summer, but I've seen a few more articles since then this summer, like that are are, you know, produced this summer anyways, about a uh, Margaritaville sort of style resort that they want to build at that site. Actually, it sounds like it'd be kind of fun, but that's all. It has nothing to do with World's Fun Ocean It's just a little tidbit about Cedar Fair. Anyways, um, anytime that you talked about World's of Fun or Ocean's of Fun with a longtime Kansas City resident, Pretty much exclusively, they will say, oh yeah, I miss Orient Express, and the park was better when it was owned by the Hunt family. Before my time, I've always known it as owned by Cedar Fair, so I don't know what the difference is, but there you go. The first park that Cedar Fair owned was Cedar Point. It's on the shores of Lake Erie. Dates back to the 1860s, actually. It was established by a local businessman named Louis uh, Zistel, Z-I-S-T-E-L. Um, and it's actually more of the other way around, like, not that Cedar Fair owned Cedar Point, but Cedar Fair grew out of the success of Cedar Point. So, the website I found that contained the details of the history of Cedar Fair was really interesting, but to make it short and sweet, Cedar Fair really came into being in the late 1970s when the owners of Cedar Point also acquired Valley Fair, which was another park. In 82, the two parks joined together and became Cedar Fair Partnership and changed from a public company to a private one. They went back to being a public company in 87, and then they took over World's Fund and Ocean's Fund in 95. Um, there's more about Cedar Fair, but I'm trying to keep it short and sweet. I found all kinds of goodies, though. Um, like, in 2006, Cedar Fair bought Paramount Parks from CBS Corps for $1.24 billion. CBS Corps split from Viacom that year, and the five parks included in the deal were Canada's Wonderland, which is near Toronto, King's Island, near Cincinnati, King's Dominion, near Richmond, Carowinds, which is in Charlotte, North Carolina, and Great America, which is located in Santa Clara, California. In 2019, SeaWorld, completely out of the blue, offers to buy Worlds of Fun for $3.4 billion. Cedar Fair passed, 
And I have to say, I'm really thankful that they didn't sell. I don't really care for SeaWorld. I don't like that they keep dolphins and um, whales and... I don't know if they have sharks, but definitely dolphins and whales in such tiny tanks. Uh, please see the Blackfish documentary. Yeah, I just cannot support their treatment of those animals. Um, so glad that they didn't sell to SeaWorld. But also in 2019, I think it was... Um, actually earlier in the year before the SeaWorld thing, Six Flags Entertainment Corps tried to buy all of Cedar Fair for $4 billion. And I was just, that was really curious. Like, what was going on in the amusement park world in 2019 that everyone's like, let's buy up Cedar Fair. Let's buy up Worlds of Fun. Okay, here we go. We're going to transition to Oceans of Fun. So I believe that I mentioned in an earlier episode that the two parks were actually separate until 92. Owned by the same people, but you had to buy two separate tickets because you couldn't, you couldn't cross over between the parks like you can now. According to Saying Goodbye to Diamond Head and a retrospect on Oceans of Fun's 38 Seasons, Written by Jennifer Lovesey Mast in September of 2019, quote, Wet and Wild, the park many consider the first true water park, opened in Orlando, Florida in 1977. Probably not coincidentally, 1977 was also the year the general manager of the park at the time, the park she, here she's referencing is Waltz of Fun, Lee Darrow had the idea to build a water park adjacent to Worlds of Fun. It would take a few years, but Oceans of Fun would finally be announced to the public on December 17, 1980. The original plan was a 35-acre tropical-themed water park, complete with wave pool water slides, a 5-acre lake, and an Olympic-sized pool. Groundbreaking occurred on June 11, 1981, when the park was again lauded by Robert Butler of the Kansas City Star as a 35-acre water park with a budget of $6 million. By May of 1982, the budget had grown to $7.25 million, and the park itself had grown to a total of 60 acres, making it, at the time, the world's largest water park. End quote. So originally there were 16 attractions, including Surf City Wave Pool, and Castaway Cove, an adults-only pool, which are still there today, and three water slides, Maui Wowie, Honolulu Lulu, and Waikiki Wipeout. When Typhoon debuted in 1983, the park then had claim to the longest water slide in America. It was designed by Waterforms Inc. of Atlanta, Georgia, company was open from or in business from 1979 to 1989. Typhoon was over 50 feet tall with a 400 foot long slide and you could slide up to 30 miles per hour. Um, that seems really, really fast for a water slide. A little bit scary there. Also in 83, a disc golf course and a floating obstacle course were added. Sorry, my notes are misspelled there, but that is correct. The Lazy River opened in 1987. It was 800 feet long. Uh, correction, is 800 feet long. Cost $7,500,000 to build 
and was built by local construction firm Burns and McDonald, who were also a part of building the original World's Fun. Mentioned that in um, part one. The monsoon was added in 1992. Fare thee well. If you are not aware, it is now closed. I missed that more. It was the best. Then a 90 foot five, sorry, 95 foot tall super slide called Hurricane Falls opened in 1999 and Predator's Plunge opened in 2013. A few other changes were made to the park over the years, but those are the highlights. Sadly, in the summer of 2022, a seven year old girl did die from unspecified, at least in the news articles that I found, injuries in the Coconut Cove, which is a kitty play slash swim area. It's um, shallow water with slides and stuff to climb on. Afterwards, Cedar Fair changed its rules. Children three and a half feet and under must now be accompanied by an adult, even at Coconut Cove. And everyone under four feet has to wear a life jacket in Coconut Cove. Also, a year later, her parents are now suing Cedar Fair. Okay, so the last thing I'm going to talk about here before I sign off are the caves. So I believe that I name-dropped Hunt Midwest in part one. Hunt Midwest was owned by the Hunt family, obviously. Hunt Midwest owns Subtropolis, which is the world's largest underground business complex, according to their website. Also from their website, some statistics here for you. Subtropolis is over 7,800,000 square feet of leasable space, more than 6,200,000 square feet for expansion. Okay, actually, I don't know what that data point is referencing. It's 10.5 miles of lighted, wide, paved roads, contains 2.1 miles of railroad track, more than, or has more than 500 truck dock locations, is served by over 300 truck lines, has a 17-foot ceiling, more than 55 international, national, regional, and local companies use their space, has more than 2,000 employees, contains more than 1,600 parking lots, has over 10,000 limestone pillars, tail pulled up that ceiling, is protected by fire sprinklers, and is built within a layer of limestone the strength of which is 18,000 to 24,000 pounds per square inch, which is six times stronger than concrete. They have a really cool little illustration on their website that shows the, the layers of the limestone and the depth of the caves. So there's this deep, deep layer of soil, right? And then a layer of winter-set limestone, a thin layer of shell. I don't think I said that right. Shale. And then a layer of Bethany Falls limestone. That's where the caves are located. And they set atop a layer of Middle Creek limestone. So, I don't know about y'all, but 8th grade geology was a hell of a long time ago. And I was like, I know that limestone is rock, and I know that shale is rock, and I know that shale is brittle, and that's about all that I know. So, I did some research. Everyone else who is 
also not a scientist and does not remember, here you go. Quote, limestone is a sedimentary rock, which means it is formed from small particles of rock or stone that have been compacted by pressure. Sedimentary rock is important because it often contains fossils and gives clues about what type of rock was on the earth long ago. Just like a tree's rings tell a lot about its environment, layers found in sedimentary rock can tell about important changes in the environment. Limestone is formed in two ways. It can be formed with the help of living organisms and by evaporation. The second way limestone is formed is when water containing particles of calcium carbonate evaporate, leaving behind the sediment deposit. The water pressure compacts the sediment, creating limestone. End quote. Meanwhile, shale is, quote, a soft, brittle, fine-grained, and easily eroded sedimentary rock formed from mineral-rich silt or mud that was deposited in an aquatic environment, buried by other sediment, and compacted and cemented into hard rock. When this exposed at the surface by erosion, shale weathers into thin layers called plates. End quote. You didn't think you would be getting science on a history podcast, did you? I'm not a scientist, and I don't do well with math, but I, I still find science really fascinating. So I went into a really deep rabbit hole on this, and I'm going to take you all with me. So here's some more um, more in-depth science information for all my science nerds out there. I know that you're listening, and I appreciate you. Quote, a cross-bedded stone of variegated colors in the earth tone ranges, Winterset is a highly workable, mason-friendly stone. Quarried in block form, Winterset is suitable for cut pieces as well as machine split or thin cut veneer. It is often used for pool coping, wall or post caps, hearths, mantles, window sills, and countertops. End quote. New quote. Bethany Falls Limestone, member of Kansas City Formation, as consisting in northwest Missouri of 15 to 25 feet of limestone, locally called cotton rock, underlying Galesburg Shale member and overlaying Lador Shale member. End quote. New quote. <laughs> Upper seven inches fine grained, buff covered, brittle, shelly. no idea how to pronounce this, um, fucoidal limestone with very few fossils, lower part irregularly and evenly bedded light grayish or drab crystalline limestone weathering bluff, thickness 18 to 22 feet, end quote. Okay, so I pulled that from a few different, um, websites, um, actually, well, let's see what I have here. Um, geokansas.ku.edu, ngmdb.usgs.gov. Yeah, so a couple of government or educational websites there. Um, to describe in further detail the limestone and the shale layers found in and around this area. According to Flatline Casey, this specific limestone, and um, I believe they're talking about Bethany Falls here, this specific limestone is a prominent formation in the region's geological landscape, part of the Pennsylvania Age Kansas City group. 
It has also become a staple in the residential landscape. Not only is Kansas City one of the only places in the world where this limestone layer protrudes from the earth, but it has been locally quarried for quintessential Kansas City houses. Those limestone-heavy homes can be found in areas such as Midtown, Hyde Park, the historic Northeast, and the Volcker area. End quote. So, um, I'm trying to think. Um, maybe in my Patreon episode about Irish history, which has never been available to the general public, but um, I think there and maybe one other public episode I have talked about how local limestone has been quarried for houses in the area. So this is really cool. It's really cool that this is the only place in the world where this formation uh, protrudes from the earth. Therefore, it can be quarried with relative ease. The Pennsylvania period that I mentioned a minute ago was formed 323.2 million to 298.9 million years ago. Wow. Quote, Middle Creek limestone is the transgressive limestone of the Swope Formation, which means it can be found below the prominent Bethlehem Bethany Falls limestone in the eastern and southern parts of the Kansas City area. End quote. Okay, so in summation from all of this, basically, there are two layers of limestone in this area, Bethany Falls and Middle Creek. Both were formed during the Pennsylvania period, which is 298 to 323 million years ago. It's very special to the Kansas City area because it is the only area in the world in which this limestone is so close to the surface um, and protrudes to the surface that it can be easily extracted. The limestone has been used to build houses within the area and limestone is a sedimentary rock which is formed through um, evaporation of water leaving behind soil deposits which are then compacted into a very hard stone and fossils are often found in this layer. There's also a thin layer of shale between the two and there you go. I hope that all makes sense. I just find it super fascinating. Geology! Thank you. Moving on. Subtropolis is located in North Kansas City. It's about 20 minutes from the airport and like 10 minutes from Worlds of Fun, according to the map. Um, like I said before, it has fully paved roads and it's climate controlled. So, if at all possible, Laura would really like to take an adventure here someday and just drive around and see what we can find. Yeah. Examples of things stored down in the caves. A stamp collection. Quote, since 1982, the United States Postal Service Stamp Fulfillment Center has stored postage stamps for the entire country inside of the caves just north of the river near the Americana, um, Ameristar Casino, end quote. The National Archives stores records down there, and there is cheese stored down there. So if you're not a public historian or have training in archival collections and management, you might think it's strange to keep an archive in a cave. And that's because you are imagining the caves that you see in movies, which are full of bats, 
and bat guano and damp with mineral m- uh, mineral water. There we go. Um, maybe the cave even floods in heavy rainstorms. That image does not match these caves at all, as evidenced by my description earlier. These are actually excellent storage facilities for archives because the temperature and humidity is naturally consistent, so it protects the documents from environmental deterioration. Also, let me assure you, the documents preserved are not um, of state or national significance. Those are not ever, ever kept in a cave. What's kept in the caves are temporary, quote, inactive documents like tax records or, quote, the medical equipment used when JFK was assassinated in 1963 now resides in Lenexa in closed storage, end quote. That sort of seems like it should maybe be kept in a very secure location. Not that this isn't secure, actually, it is. You need a a badge and they have 24-hour security, but it just seems really random that it's in Lenexa. Um, and it's actually truly there. Um, I will explain in a moment. So there are four federal records centers, AKA FCR, Lee Summit, which opened in 97, Lenexa, which opened in 20, um, no, 2003. There we go. There's one in Valmire, Illinois, which is 40 miles southeast of St. Louis, which opened in 2008, and Subtropolis, the record center in Subtropolis opened in 2012. So I know that the medical equipment is actually in the Lenexa caves because I worked there for about a month in the senior year of undergrad. To be honest, I super hated it. I felt like I was not learning anything about archival collections and management and how to care for archival documents. And I knew that I wanted to go into museums or archives or something like that after... Actually, I knew that I wanted to go to grad school first, but um, after grad school, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I thought I should you know, start getting some experience in that. So that's why I applied for the job at the National Archives in Lenexa. Found out that's not what they were doing, so I quit. Ended up getting a job like a week later at the UMKC University campus where I actually learned how to start taking care of archival documents. That was great. But um, to wrap this up, the thing about the medical equipment from the JFK assassination, there was this corner way in the back, and like not an actual corner, but somewhere far in the back. It it was a maze down there. It's like 50 football fields area, uh, space equivalency, I don't know. Like, unless you knew how to find this little hidden away section, you weren't going to find it. You would get lost. Um, But there was floor-to-ceiling chain-link fence with locks and cameras, and everything was covered so that you couldn't see what was actually in the containers. And it was like the day of my tour. They're like, yeah, that's from JFK. I was like, oh, all right then. All right. You know what? I think we're done. That is the end of today's episode. Thank you for joining me today as we explored the history behind Kansas City's Worlds of Fun. Again, this concludes this topic and this series. 
Our next series, which I hope you'll join me for, is going to focus on biographies of several Kansas City's best-known jazz musicians from the golden age of jazz. Before we end today, let's cover sources. So just like every other episode for this topic, umwof.blogspot.com, worldsoffun.com, and worldsoffun.org were invaluable. I also had several articles from Fox 4 News, NBC News, Flatland, and KCQR. Huntmanwest.com and cedarfair.com were very helpful. And uh, as I mentioned before, I found lots of cool government-run websites to help explain all the geology stuff. I'm going to have a link to the Worlds of Fun Facebook group and Defunklands video on Facebook um, on Worlds of Fun on the website. And I haven't decided yet, but I think I'm also going to add the Timeline website and maybe another link or two, maybe something about the geology of the area to the website, my website. I hope you will consider becoming a financial supporter of the show. There are several ways you can do so. You can subscribe to patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. You can also give a one-time donation at redcircle.com or coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash homegrownkc. You can give as little or as much as you want, even as little as $1 a month. Once you sign up and subscribe to the show, you will be charged on that day and then on the first of every following month. If you become a patron supporter, you get three things. An item from the merchandise store valued at $5 or less. A shout out on every episode and social media post. Thank you, Joan, for your continued support. And you get access to exclusive bonus content featuring local historians, archivists, and museum curators. Everyone who simply donates will receive will receive a shout out on the next available episode, but you do not get access to the bonus content or anything from the merchandise store. Additionally, if you simply donate on coffee, 1% of that donation automatically goes to help fight climate change. I did not record any Patreon episodes this month. However, I did finally upload my last two Patreon recordings earlier in the month. Um, that's with Jennifer Lovesey Mast who is Worlds of Fun historian, and Andrew Gustafson about their current special exhibit, The Transformative Nature of Trains in Johnson County. I also don't have anything planned next month, but I have reached out to a few people. Hopefully, I'll have answers soon. If you cannot support me monetarily, you can still support me by liking, following, and subscribing my social media pages. That's Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Tumblr, Twitter, and YouTube. Also. Tell your friends and family, your coworkers, your neighbors, the guy down the street that you don't like about me. Get them to start listening. Uh, word of mouth is the best way to get new followers. I am homegrown KC everywhere. Also, rate and review me wherever you listen, especially on Apple Podcasts. You can visit my website for additional information on every topic. That's homegrownkc.wordpress.com. And you can sign up for my newsletter there. That is the only place where you can sign up for my newsletter. Once a month, you'll receive an email that says, here's what's new, what's upcoming with the website. Uh, It's just a good way um, with the podcast, not the website. It's a good way to stay up to date. And uh, I think in the future, I would really like to do some giveaways through the newsletter. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or episode suggestions, you can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com 
or DM me on any of my social media networks. If you want to check out what merchandise I have available, go to www.zazzle.com. That's Z-A-Z-Z-L-E dot com slash store slash homegrown underscore Casey underscore store to see what is available. Thank you goes out to my talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, for the creation of my logo. To the dear missus for the use of their song, Kansas City, as the intro and outro music of every episode. And to local libraries, which enable me to gather all my research. And thank you for listening. Cheers. seem to shake this feeling and I can seem to get you off my mind. I've lost my nerve forever and I know that it's now or never to try and see this through. Die loose ends up with a bow and start anew. We could talk through the nights on the phone.